Good morning. If you take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 28. <clears throat> this morning we'll be returning to our Life in the Local Church series. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that we would look at the two ordinances that our Lord has given to the church in baptism and communion a little bit more closely. Today, obviously, we'll look at baptism. Next week, mark your calendars. It actually is Communion Sunday for us, um, and we will examine communion, perfectly logistically situated for us before we come to the Lord's table next week. Our title for today's message is Baptism and Ordinance for the Church. Would you please stand with me? I'll read the Great Commission, verses 19 and 20 of Matthew chapter 28. Set the stage for us. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You may be seated. Thanks be to God for his authoritative and living word. You know, in our message several weeks ago, the purpose for the church, we laid out three foundations. By way of reminder, you might remember that we looked at a doxological focus, the glory of God, a teaching focus, and then a fellowship focus. Now, in that fellowship focus, we also included several sub-points. We talked about meeting together and unity, and prayer, and then, of course, the ordinances of the church. Overall, we looked at several passages of Scripture that fully support our foundations for the purpose of the church. That said, perhaps none are more convincing than the Great Commission itself. Our Lord's last words to the apostles and by way of implication to the church before His ascension. He commanded them, did he not? We know it, we just read it, to make disciples and then go forth baptizing and teaching them. This morning, as we mentioned, we'll deal with the baptism aspect of this great commission and several other passages of scripture that go along with that. And one thing is certainly crystal clear From this passage, and we will see throughout the pages of Scripture in general, that baptism is a fundamental component of Christianity, one that flows forth as a fruit of genuine saving grace. Unfortunately, though, for some reason or another, and maybe we'll address some of those here today, there seems to be great confusion even within Christian circles, or even at times, unfortunately, indifference to this command. Take, for example, even today, as we speak, as we come together 
meeting together. There are millions around the world that are baptized and are not even believers. Or, on the other side of the discussion, there are many who are genuine, born-again believers, but have never been biblically baptized. Or, maybe even other believers that have been baptized, or believe they've been baptized, but have never biblically been baptized. And there's no other baptism but biblical baptism. And this is a problem. It's crystal clear from the scriptures. That said, we should not take for granted the commands of our Lord for his church. What's more, it's a part and parcel of the purpose of the church, as we discussed. The church in which our Lord laid down his life for. We should be concerned with a proper application and obedience when it comes to any command of Scripture, let alone baptism. And my purpose in this message is twofold. For those of you who are truly born again believers in Jesus Christ and have experienced believers' baptism following that experience of saving grace. There is certainly benefit for you, and we will talk about that, and significance in remembering what you identified with in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Not to mention... When studying to show ourselves approved, does that not make us more equipped to make more disciples, to engage and interact with those in whom we love and trust? Maybe after hearing a message such as this, God will lay upon your heart to communicate these truths to an individual that perhaps has never experienced biblical Baptism. And secondly, there may be others, even here within our church, Miriam Christian Chapel, who, after hearing the Bible's instruction for believers' baptism, they will acknowledge their own need to experience what our Lord has commanded of you. What a joyous opportunity that will be for us all to celebrate together and this ordinance for the church. So, let's jump right in. We'll tackle this topic by answering three separate questions, which should help to provide greater clarity of understanding for us as we consider um, this Word of God and how we might rightly divide it and apply it. So, question number one is, what is baptism and its significance. Now, I have to say up front, you know, I don't typically like to mention a lot of Hebrew or Greek in the pulpit, but today I need to mention a little bit. I think it will help us for us when it comes to further defining these terms, and that's what we need to do right up front in order that we have a greater understanding of what is baptism. 
The English word baptism actually comes from the Greek word baptizo or bapto. You can see the resemblance even in and of itself. Unfortunately, I would argue that the translators would have been better off if they would have stuck to the definition of the term rather than transliterating it. Baptizo, baptism. Perhaps, and I would argue that that often sometimes communicates further to some of the confusion. The word actually means to immerse or dip. Now, this in and of itself is extremely helpful if we were to just take the words of the Greek lexicons, which is in essence nothing more than a dictionary for Greek words. However, what does it look like in the scriptures, though? That is our ultimate measuring stick. Let's look at two examples. Not dealing with baptism in particular, which we will obviously get to, important for us to get to. Nonetheless, even these two examples begin to clearly communicate for us the meaning of the word in the context in which we study. You don't need to turn there, but make a note. Luke chapter 16, verse 24, reads, And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. That's that word dip. And then John chapter 13, verse 26 reads, Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now there are more that we could look to, but at least just with these two examples, we start to begin to see the definition become more clear, that there is an immersing or a dipping that is taking place within this context. What about the actual act of baptism? Even more important for us to discern and rightly understand what God's word has to say. Turn back this time to Matthew chapter 3. We're already in the gospel of Matthew, so a little bit easier for us. Chapter 3, verse 16. We'll start to see this take, take shape for us in order that we properly define what is baptism and then we'll move into what its significance is. Chapter 3, verse 16 reads, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him he came up out of the water turn over to the gospel of Mark Mark chapter 1 we'll look at the account of John the Baptist although the the word baptism is clearly on display here, and the actual act of baptism is clearly on display, and we'll begin to see it again shed light on its meaning. 
Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. How about two more? As this becomes critical for us to see its definition in action. Turn over to the book of Acts. Many of you will be familiar with Acts chapter 8 and the account of the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 8, verse 38. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized them. They went down into the water. One more, for good measure. Turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 23. Don't you love that sweet sound of Bibles flipping? 3.23. John also was baptizing in Anon near Selim because there was much water there and people were coming and were being baptized. So, hopefully by now we're beginning to see This takes shape. On the surface, we can see a clear description in Scripture of what we already alluded to concerning the definition of what baptism means. To be immersed or to dip into. Although, what about the word sprinkling? Could that possibly be a rendering for us? We have to address it. We know that there are many, even orthodox, evangelical Christians that would hold to that view as being appropriate. Just to name a few, Presbyterians or Methodists, some that would be true, born again, many born-again believers that would understand sprinkling as being appropriate and biblical. Even outside of orthodox, evangelical believers, non-evangelical, let's take, for example, Roman Catholicism, that clearly practices a mode of baptism that would involve sprinkling. The answer to the question of whether or not this is appropriate, is categorically no. Now, we've just looked at several passages of Scripture that make it hard for us to understand that, but let's continue to dig deeper with a little bit more Greek 101. The word sprinkled in the Greek is a completely different word than that of baptizo for baptism. The word is 
rantizo. And by the way, it's never used when it comes to baptism as we understand. So, given the definition of this term and its biblical examples, we must conclude that biblical baptism involves always immersion. That said, what about this term, ordinance? It's in the title of our message, baptism, an ordinance for the church. Compared to maybe a term that some of you are familiar with, known as sacrament. It's important for us to distinguish the differences in these two terms as well. Truly helps us to determine the essential differences between an ordinance, for the most part, and a sacrament. Now, we must say up front that there are individuals that use those terms synonymously. But more often than not, there is a distinctive difference between a sacrament and an ordinance. Especially, for example, when it comes to Roman Catholicism. In this gross misrepresentation of a sacrament, it's understood to be literally conveying saving grace. What's more, in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, specifically identifies baptism, Catholic baptism, along with the six other sacraments, as necessary for salvation. This is key, extremely, for us to understand the distinctions here in order that we don't fall into these traps. This is another reason why many Protestant evangelical churches use the term ordinance as compared to sacrament. Christianity has always been a message of salvation by grace and faith alone. We hold dearly to that truth. No work is ever enough to save us. And unfortunately, there are many that look at baptism as an essential, necessary work for salvation. Hence, the necessity for us to define and distinguish the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament. Finally, though, Regarding this first question, let's briefly examine the significance of baptism. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. I'll read the first four verses of Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, as we look to discern the significance of of baptism. Romans 6, beginning with verse 1, reads, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus 
have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Now, one quick point right up front concerning the symbolism of baptism. I don't know too many people that are going to be sprinkled with dirt when they're buried in death. Nevertheless, let's focus on this newness of life. This is an excellent application for those of you who are truly born-again believers and have experienced biblical baptism. It is indeed an identification with Christ's death and his burial. But it is wholeheartedly just as much a public identification with his resurrection. Even as Chad read this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, And that tremendous passage is Paul's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus and he gets into praying for them and certain components of the life that he desires that they would manifest. And listen to what he says in verses 18 through 20 of Ephesians chapter 1 concerning this resurrection power that is within you. And in baptism we've identified with. He says... I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Baptism is significant in that it is an excellent opportunity for us to remember and celebrate, especially communally, publicly, that the old man is gone. Behold, the new has come. In that same Romans chapter 6 section, Paul goes on to say that you are no longer a slave to sin. You have resurrection power within you to walk in the newness of life as a new creation in Christ. That said, let's touch on one other scripture before moving to our second question. Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Paul says, And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith, In the working of God who raised him from the dead. Once again, 
You might even have heard several points that we've already addressed. He goes on to reiterate that this resurrection power that you are identifying in the act of of baptism, of being raised to life, the old man, dead and passed away. However, there's a big new point here that I want to address, and that's the symbolic connection that Paul alludes to with circumcision. Think about this just for a moment. Paul makes this connection that the sign of circumcision connected with the Abrahamic covenant, which was intended for the nation of Israel under the law, he makes a connection with that, with this sign of baptism, with the new birth that we have in Christ. This is significant indeed. As Paul utilizes the intimate nature of a covenantal connection in addressing the circumcision of the law with the Abrahamic covenant, with that of baptism, and in the new birth of Christ. With that symbolism and connection concerning the Lord's people, intimate as it is, understood, it also provides a tremendous segue for us into our second question. And that's number two, who participates in baptism? Turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we will come back to that Colossians 2 at the end because there's a a wonderful connection still to come. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I want us to look at several passages here as we examine, okay, we understand what is baptism. What is its significance? It involves an immersion. It involves something that connects us with the death and burial and resurrection power of Christ. As we seek to answer the question, who participates in baptism? Let's look at several passages that start to answer that question. Acts 2.38 reads, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Key word, repent. Look to several verses down, same chapter, verse 41. He goes on to say, So then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Key here, received his word. Or turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 12. Our first key word was repent. Second phrase in that next verse we looked at was that they received his word. And then here in Acts 8, Verse 12, we read, But when they believed, 
Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Key word here, believed. If we were to turn to the Great Commission, we understand that it was the disciples who were called to be baptized. Who are disciples? But yet followers of Christ. Or as John might say, those who are born again. Or as Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians, that those that are in Christ are a new creation, as we've alluded to several times already. Or we might even look at the Apostle John and that letter that we'll be moving to here shortly. And when he distinguishes and identifies who disciples are, who are believers, who are the children of God, they are those that practice righteousness. So, whether it's repentance, the ability to receive the word, believed, or born-again followers of Christ, what do all of these terms communicate? First off, repentance always involves a commitment to turning away from a way of life or an attitude. And that Acts 2.41 verse that spoke about those that receive the word, this can be understood as those who believe and then acted accordingly on that belief. The answer and what they communicate simply boils down to two words, and that is believer's baptism. Believer's baptism. That said, this leads us to an obvious question. What about infant baptism? If baptism clearly involves an action that reflects true saving faith, and it does, as we've seen, and there's so much more that we could look at, there's only one logical conclusion. Infant baptism means absolutely nothing and is not baptism. Likewise, and this is critical for us to understand, when we consider who participates in baptism, what about someone who has professed to believe in Jesus Christ, was baptized, and then proceeded to live a life of habitual practicing of sin? Now we know, as we just looked at several passages of Scripture, that is not a follower of Christ. Every single one of us know that we sin daily. We seek the grace and forgiveness and mercy of God daily because of our sin nature that we still wrestle with. But Scripture is abundantly clear that the man of God, the woman of God, practices righteousness, does not habitually practice sin or live in sin. What are we to do then with those who profess Christ, have been baptized, but then yet have lived nothing but a life of sin? One of Scripture's answers to that question comes from James chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. 
You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now what are we to make of this then? If professing faith is absent of works, if baptism took place in the past, and the corresponding fruit of the Spirit, practicing of it, did not transpire, then we should be concerned with whether or not one was truly ever even born again or even experienced believer's baptism. Why is this? And that is simply because of what we've already addressed. Born again believers, followers of Christ, practice righteousness, not practice sin. Unfortunately, in today's culture, this happens far too often. Church leaders, families alike are too quick to baptize individuals that may have made some type of emotional response or decision to follow Christ. Of course, none of us can truly ever know the state of a person's soul or verify the validity of one's commitment to Christ. However, we can all certainly take the initiative, church leaders as well as parents alike, to examine one's fruit and motives and decision to follow Christ, to rejoice, yes, often with those who choose in obedience to step forward and experience the ordinance of baptism. Yet at the same time, Faithful to Scripture's requirements of who participates in baptism. Over the years, I've seen situations like this play out time and time again. I might even say to us here, if there is anyone here today where that is the case, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered you in your adult life from sin. But yet in the past, you experienced baptism. But now looking back in hindsight, perhaps it never was true biblical believer's baptism. Might I lovingly encourage you to step forward in obedience for the first time when it comes to believer's baptism. Once again, having nothing to do with the state of your soul and salvation, which is already secure, but just a simple act of obedience to your Lord, to your Savior. Perhaps there's some here that have experienced baptism as a baby. What did we say? State. But this is not baptism. Might I encourage you, lovingly, in truth, if that is you, to step forward in submission, in humility, for the first time, in baptism. 
in all of these potential circumstances. What a wonderful opportunity it is for us to celebrate and to rejoice together. Together, that's key. Communally, publicly, and we'll address that a little bit here in a second. Before we look at the final question, consider this quote on believer's baptism from Charles Spurgeon. He said, A man who knows that he is saved by believing in Christ does not, when he is baptized, lift his baptism into a saving ordinance. In fact, he is the very best protector against that mistake because he holds that he has no right to be baptized until he is saved. Well said from the Prince of Preachers himself. Our third and final question is why do we participate in baptism? When it comes to the why, hopefully as we discuss the significance of baptism That plays a huge role in understanding that we are identifying with the death and burial and, yes, resurrection power of Christ that resides within us. That in and of itself is a wonderful why for us. That said, obedience should always take precedent in any matter of Christian application or doctrine, whether it's the Great Commission Acts chapter 2, verse 38, or many other numerous passages of Scripture, my friends, baptism is not an option to neglect. Jesus said in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, we've mentioned several potential people groups who could be in need of believers' baptism throughout this message. Let me touch on just one more. In churches around the world, there are genuine, born-again believers of Jesus Christ who have never been baptized. In some cases... It's just a misunderstanding. Others, maybe it's an indifference to the command. Hopefully by now, if there is anyone here within our congregation where this is the case, a light of significance and a fire of obedience has been lit. Listen to the words of this incredible account when it comes to further considering the why we participate in baptism from Matthew chapter 3. You don't need to turn there. If you want to, that's fine. Or make a note. Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. I want you to hear how significant this is as we seek to understand why we participate in baptism. And don't forget, my brothers and sisters, don't check out if you have experienced this. These are incredible truths for you to be able to speak to those in whom you love. 
that need to hear this. Matthew 3, 13 through 15 reads, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering him said to him, Permit it at this time. For in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Listen. If there were ever a person who had no need of baptism, it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet he, in humble submission, in order to fulfill all righteousness, submitted himself to baptism. What's more, this was a public display of his allegiance and unity with the Father. In verse 17 in that account, we hear the words of God the Father say, And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When we think of another public proclamation of commitment, the words of Christ continue to challenge us. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32, we hear, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. Public confession, declaration of our allegiance and our commitment to Christ. Why do we participate in baptism? Because our Lord commands us to do so. It's in his life that we see the ultimate example of humility and submission and obedience. It's in this public proclamation that we identify with our precious Lord and Savior. That we connect with his death, burial, and resurrection power that resides within us, that's called us to walk in newness of life, to no longer be slaves to sin. As we look to close here, I mentioned that we would come back to Colossians chapter 2. I want to make one other point of connection to that passage. We saw how Paul connected this symbolic sign of circumcision with the Abrahamic covenant, and then in turn, the symbolic sign of baptism with the new birth. That said, listen to the words of Moses in Genesis chapter 17 for a greater perspective concerning the willing rejection of such sign. This was written for the nation of Israel, under the law. Not specifically for us, but, big but, there's tremendous implication that we can pull from it. Genesis seventeen fourteen, spoken to those who would reject 
the sign of circumcision. He says, But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Here's what I want us to see from this. Once again, let me reiterate. Baptism has nothing to do with salvation. If you are in Christ, you will never be cut off from Him. Praise the Lord. However, there is tremendous principle and implication that flows forth from this command that was given to the nation of Israel. A principle that further identifies the importance of obedience. For the nation of Israel, if they failed to be circumcised, they would be cut off because of breaking the covenant. My friends, there is no room for indifference to any of our Lord's commands let alone baptism, which is, once again, one of the only two ordinances given to his church. Extremely important that he requires of us. So let's wrap this up with just a couple last comments. Once again, for those of us who are truly born again and have experienced Believer's baptism following our saving relationship in Christ. Don't forget the resurrection power that you connect with, that you relate with, that enables you to walk in newness of life and to no longer be enslaved to sin. What's more, the opportunity as well as the Great Commission that we all have access to to make disciples. Many of us, even today, may have friends that have never truly received believers' biblical baptism. Would a message such as this further equip you to, in love, speak truth? Finally, if there are any here today who've been convicted about the need for believers' baptism, I strongly urge you to step forward in obedience. Maybe there are some young people here today that have truly received Christ as their Lord and Savior, but have never been biblically baptized. I encourage you today, talk to me. Reach out to me. Talk to your parents first and foremost. And let's have a discussion. Because your Lord commands you, if you are in Christ, to step forward. Or maybe there are some older adults here who've been convicted of this need. We should not be naive to think that there are not some that are in need of this. Throughout the universal church as a whole, 
It's been a while. But I would love more than anything to be standing right back there ready for baptism for as many as the Lord wills in this congregation. Reach out to me. Email me. Speak to me directly. Speak to your deacons. Step forward in obedience. Bow with me in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this this glorious and wonderful truth that we have access, first and foremost, to the saving grace that you have given to us. And Lord, we thank you that in that saving grace, you have given us an opportunity to identify with your death and burial and resurrection of Christ. Lord, we thank you that, the de- that death has no power over us. And that is only because of your victory over such death. Lord, and in that victory, you left us with your Holy Spirit that empowers us. We have resurrection power that we identify with within us. That equips us. That molds us. That shapes us more into your image. Lord, we desire by the grace of God to be found to be faithful, submissive, humble servants of our Lord Jesus Christ in all areas of Christian life and practice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.